Good evening, everyone. I think you can do slightly better than that. Good evening, everyone. Ah, so much more welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Before we pray and ask for God's help this evening, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open? Again, page 891 in your Holman Church Bibles. And uh, yeah, that will be helpful as we study God's Word together. So let us pray. Gracious Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness to us, and especially that which is shown in and through your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to your word to learn more about him and the significance of him in our lives, would you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears as we receive the truth of your word. And I pray too that you'll be with me now as I seek to share these truths with your people and may we all live more to the glory of your great name as a result. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name's Thomas Murray, and I'm one of the uh, student ministers here at church. Now, although um, I am from Ireland, um, I'm not looking this like, much like a thug uh, the rest of the time, or usually, um, but I thought it best fitting this evening that I begin by addressing the proverbial elephant in the room, namely my left arm. Um, this is, of course, an average look for all Moor College students um, after a week of mission, um, where I've been up in, uh, over, down in Hobart in Tasmania. Um, but I'm kidding, of course. As much as I would like to say that my injuries were, of course, in the defense of the gospel, that I came face to face with a gang of angry atheists, uh, not so keen to hear about Jesus and the love he has to share, Um, Sadly, this was not the case, but my injuries were actually um, as a result of a run-in with the law, the law of gravity. (laughs) When a young man foolishly judges, of course that's me, foolishly judges it to be a good idea to cycle a bicycle track in the dark the week before he is to preach a sermon and submit an Old Testament essay, it is rather inevitable that accidents are going to happen. However, after being diagnosed with a bust lip, grazed face, wobbly teeth, sprained right wrist, and even a broken left elbow, let me start this evening by asking you one question. How was your week? (laughs) Now, with all these jokes aside, injuring oneself does, of course, bring to mind just how fragile human life can be. Maybe... If you're going through an injured state or have others in your family who are like that, maybe you can relate. But it also reminds me just how complex and how organized our human bodies really are. As each body part or organ or even limb, in my case, is dependent upon all the others, it goes to show just how important relationships are within a body. For otherwise, the body just doesn't work. And of course, as someone who hasn't had the full function of one arm for the week, I feel that I can testify to that. In our passage this evening, Jesus teaches not on the relationships within the human body, but on the relationships within the church body and how those relationships are to relate to God. He does so to challenge our thinking on how the kingdom of God influences our attitude towards one another and also then to our Heavenly Father. 
You will see as you were handed um, on the way in this evening, um, on the handout, you were given a blank canvas upon which to write. Um, For those of you who do like a bit of structure, I do have three points that outline our talk here this evening. Um, And if you'd like to jot those down, it'll serve as a guide um, as we look at God's word tonight. So point number one, how the kingdom impacts our attitude to others. I'll repeat that, how the kingdom impacts impacts our attitude to others. That's verses 1 to 6. Our second point, how the kingdom impacts our attitude to God. That's verses 7 to 11. So how it impacts our attitude to others, how it impacts our attitude to God. And then thirdly and finally, the golden rule, verse 12. All good to go? Good stuff. If you have been following along in our study on the Sermon, of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, you will have realized that Jesus has been developing a type of argument for how these disciples are to live their lives in the kingdom of God. Over recent weeks, we have seen how Jesus calls the disciples to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. That's chapter 5, 17 to 20. Next he, went on to, next, he went on to expose the hypocrisy of the same Pharisees, chapter 6, 1 to 18. And as Phil helpfully explained last week, he now calls believers to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven and to have a kingdom-centered attitude that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here this evening he begins with a very well-known verse of scripture. Verse 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Whenever I hear this verse being read out, I can't help but think of my own dear father, who although he is not yet a Christian, and although he doesn't read the Bible, or have much in the way of a good education behind him, can still remember this verse somehow, and uses it often to defend his position on many issues. It sounds something like this. Thomas, don't you start telling me what to do. Don't you start coming at me with all this Jesus stuff. Gospel this, gospel that. Doesn't it say in your Bible, judge ye not lest ye be judged? And often the conversation ends there. Maybe you've been in that situation, having a conversation with someone and they've used that to shut it down. But of course, non-Christians... Atheists, others who seek to use a verse like this to fight against Christians, aren't the only ones who are guilty of quoting it out of context. Christians can be equally as bad. Oh, the Bible says I can't judge. It's not, it's, it's not for me to judge. You see, it says here in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. And then they step back. But folks, that is not what Jesus is getting at here in the passage. A verse like this needs to be understood completely in its context. The words in the sentence, sentence in the verse, the verse in the chapter, chapter in the book, book in the Bible. So let's read on, verse 2. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, as we've already recapped on the Sermon on the Mount thus far, 
These early disciples had just received some of the greatest pearls of wisdom, greatest pearls of teaching of their lives. Be perfect as I am perfect. Exceed the Pharisees in their righteousness. But as we may already know from our own experience of the Christian life, a righteousness that is not kept in check often leads to a self-righteousness. Jesus here is addressing the issue of judgment from one believer to another. The kind of judgment that leads to condemnation of one believer lording their righteousness over another. Of one believer being so bold to take the place of a judge without appreciating that there really is only one true judge of all. And that is, of course, God our Father. And as was read from the John reading this evening, that authority that God has passed to his son, Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus is not commanding us to stop judging, period. As if there was no place for judgment in the kingdom of God. Very far from it. He is saying that it is the manner in which you judge that you will indeed be held accountable for. It is by that judgment you will be judged. By that measure that you will be measured. And whilst it may not be apparent at first, this does have some serious consequences for us in 2017 Sydney, 21st century here at Snack. And some consequences that are worth exploring. Let me show you what I mean. Answer this question to yourself. How often do I hold a grudge? Before God, what does it really mean whenever we as Christians, if we are Christians, hold a grudge against someone? Or hold back forgiveness from someone when we don't give it freely? Have you ever thought about it? Firstly, when we say we cannot, we can't, and can't is a pretty strong word here, folks. When we say we can't forgive a non-Christian for what they've done to us, what are we really saying to God? What cosmic truth does this represent whenever we say we can't forgive the non-Christian before God? We're actually saying, God, your judgment It's not strong enough. It's not enough for this person to be judged by you. And I, I personally need to be vindicated. My judgment is more fair, more just than even yours. But secondly, and more so in keeping with the context of this passage, what about the Christian brother or sister? What do we mean when we say we can't And again, that strong word can't forgive them. What does it really mean? We are saying in actual fact that the blood of Christ is good enough to forgive me of my sin. But in no way adequate, in no way good enough to forgive them of theirs. That's a bold claim. Taking the place of God's judgment in both these circumstances calls into question not only the judgment of God per se, but even the very basis of our own salvation. It's that serious, folks. It is by that judgment you will be judged, by that measure that you will be measured. Judging in God's place, as we've said, is serious, serious business. 
and something we shouldn't take lightly. For these believers in the passage, the risk is that they will become the very thing that Jesus tells them not to become. Pharisees themselves. Taking the place of God in judgment. Judging others without even considering their own faults. Jesus goes on to show the hypocrisy of this in the next few verses. Look at me, or look with me at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye? This story sounds pretty absurd when you think about it. Imagine for a moment that, you know, you were sitting, cutting some wood, or you were welding away, and you managed to get a piece of wood or a welding spark caught in your eye. You took yourself off to St. George's, and seeking to get it removed, you called into the ED there, and the doctor comes to you and says, yes, no, no problem, I can, I can remove that. But then proceeds to turn around to face the other way, put on a blindfold, turn to you with needle and say, right, let's get started. It's the kind of thing that nightmares are made of, isn't it? Jesus is pointing out just how ridiculous, just how ludicrous it is to seek to point out the faults of someone else when we are equally or even more so at fault. And sadly, the reality is, folks, that doesn't this story hit a bit of a nerve with each of us? Are we not all guilty of doing this from time to time? Being experts at picking out the faults of others, but purposefully ignoring our own faults. Self-preservation being the name of the game. Individuality first. Tall poppy. But Jesus here goes on to call it out for what it really is and shows us just how we may remedy this situation. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Note what Jesus says here. He shows the right way that we are to judge the brother or sister in the church. He says, judge yourself first. Examine your own heart. Repent of your own sinful nature. Be right with God, and then, only then, will you be fit to judge your brother. Nowhere here in the context of these first five verses does Jesus mean or say, do not judge, full stop. But he says, judge wisely. Look at how you judge. Judge yourself first, then judge others. There's a risk when the preacher stands up here and talks about judgment, and especially in the context of this passage, that people receive the notion that you must be perfect before you can judge or hold your brother or sister in faith um, to account. Let me say, if that's the case, folks, we'd be waiting a very long time before we could say anything to anyone. But like Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 Jesus shows us that there does come a time to call out sin for what it really is. To dispel the immoral brother from the fellowship, if that is indeed what it takes to win them back into the fold. 
Like Paul, Jesus is saying here that challenge and rebuke are a big part of Christian fellowship. But even then, it should be done with both grace and humility. Having addressed how Christians should judge one another in the faith, Jesus moves on to address a new question in the next verse. He's asking the question, how do you deal with the outsider? Having looked at what it looks like to form relationship and how the kingdom of God impacts us inside the church, how then does that impact the outside? How do you deal with the outsider? How do you deal with the person who does not want to know about Jesus? Where there is no real help in removing the speck from their eye? How do you deal with them? Verse 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Or toss your pearls before pigs. Or they will trample them with their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. Now, in the ancient world, dogs weren't, of course, considered pets. It wasn't the Hollywood Paris Hilton and her handbag chihuahua. They weren't quite the fashion accessory that everyone was after. No, these dogs were, of course, ravenous beasts, scavengers who would eat anything, picking the meat off the carcasses of the dead, who would be well used to fighting for their meals and would often turn upon the people who were feeding them from time to time. Pigs were, of course, considered to be you know, an unclean animal in Jewish culture. And I don't know if you've ever grown up on a pig farm or seen a pig farm or seen pigs eat, but it is quite a sight. And they are well known for taking the good food that has been offered to them, trampling it through the mud, but still eating it nevertheless. So we have a pretty diverse picture here. There are those who present as ferocious opposers and those who cannot appreciate the good gift they have in front of them. And that good gift, that which is holy, is of course the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now sadly folks, there are those who as hard as we might try, just won't get it. You may have the greatest passion for the lost, and I pray that indeed you do. You may even be the next Billy Graham in terms of ability and willingness to evangelize and share the gospel with the lost. But there are still going to be some who just just don't get it, just don't recognize the true value of the gospel and utterly reject it. And Jesus is saying here, in a very bold way, That it would be a waste of time to continue to present the gospel to them. And of course we do see a similar image of this slightly later on in this gospel of Matthew. Matthew 10. When Jesus sends his disciples out as sheep amongst wolves. Giving them instruction on what to do in this circumstance. Verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words. Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. I hope in part when you reflect um, upon what exactly did happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you don't know, um, do feel free to ask somebody later. But I hope in part it does grieve you. 
I hope in part you mourn for the lost. Because to stop sharing the gospel on these grounds is of course no easy decision to make. Especially if it's a close relative or an dear loved one. We know that without it, these people who don't receive the truth of the gospel are destined to face both death and judgment. But in the same way that we are faithfully called to reach out with the arm of the gospel, we are also to depend and rest upon God, who is the one who, of course, calls people to himself by his spirit. But even in our grief over this, even in our decision-making regarding who to withdraw the gospel from and who even to persevere with, our passage does go on to instruct us on how we can best deal with it. And that is through the means of prayer. The means of prayer to an almighty heavenly father that does indeed care. And the next part of our passage, we see these words repeated. Ask, in your version, search. I'm going to use the word seek. We ask, we seek, we knock. In these last few verses, verses 7 to 11, Jesus outlines for us how the kingdom of God impacts our attitude towards God. And it reveals to us the truth of who he is and what he is like, our heavenly father. Having lived um, with a father who likes to pride himself on being a bit of a practical joker, I feel that I can relate um, to the next few verses that do come in this passage. You maybe know a father like this, lame dad jokes, has perfected the never cool dad dancing and always embarrasses you wherever you go. Maybe you're sitting beside a dad like that now. Maybe you, maybe you are that dad. And if so, I feel your child's pain. <laughs> but imagine for a second a dad that when his child was hungry, genuinely hungry, would actually give stones instead of bread. Or even throw a deadly snake in front of them instead of the normal fish supper. It's quite a sick joke, isn't it? What sort of good father would ever consciously and seriously do this? I would hope not a single one would. Jesus says, verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The answer, ask, seek, knock. Note that the good gifts Jesus here is talking about isn't, of course, a Ferrari or a luxurious holiday home or even more holidays or more money to spend on yourself. In keeping with the context of the passage, this is where it really hits home. If you want to know how to judge your Christian neighbor appropriately, knowing that as you too will be judged as we make judgments upon anyone else, seek the wisdom of God. Ask Seek, knock. As you pray with grief in your heart over someone who you fear may be a pig or a dog, who just won't accept the truth of the gospel that you present before them, before you move on, ask, seek, knock. Whenever you want to know more of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And want to see that lived out more in your life to the glory of God? The answer, ask, seek, knock. 
As we've been studying in our gospel teams, 1 John, there's a few verses that relate to this very well. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. Now this is the confidence that we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Put even more simply, folks, God is good. God loves us. How could we ever doubt the fact that he loves us whenever he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place on the cross? He really loves you. And he has given us the privilege through the death of his son on the cross to be adopted sons and daughters so that we can ask, seek, and knock and receive in accordance with his will. Jesus moves on and in this last verse that we'll look at here this evening begins with a therefore. And of course, you've probably heard it said from here before in this pulpit or this stage. Being being astute people, we have to ask the question, therefore, what is it therefore? But he says, therefore, given all that has gone before, not just what we've looked at today, but in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sums up all the teaching of the law and the prophets with one simple rule, which is commonly known as the golden rule. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. Jesus has challenged his disciples and he's challenging us here this evening to go out to glorify God and to live in his will. And how are they to do that? What does it mean to obey this golden rule? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And as the passage has taught us, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And what's the best way that we can love our neighbor? By telling them the good news of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before I close, I want to give a few quick points of application, which are just a summary of everything we've looked at here this evening. So if you've switched off, your last chance to come back in. Point one, judge yourself first before you judge others. But still realize that there is a place to judge others as it is right and true to do so in the church. Point two, there will come a time when we do have to withdraw the truth of the gospel from people. But we do not do this lightly, but do so trusting God in his sovereignty. Thirdly, whenever in either of these situations come around, we have to seek God for his wisdom and all his good gifts in prayer as we ask, as we seek, and as we knock. And finally, if we are ever in doubt and ever concerned about how we are to best interpret this, we rely on the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, in reflection of your word and in what we have um, heard from it here this evening, 
Help us, Lord, to live lives by that golden rule. To treat others as we would want to be treated. To love them as we would want to be loved. Lord, help us to make wise decisions, but to prayerfully rely upon you in your sovereignty to guide us each and every day. Lord, help us as we go from this place to live boldly for your truth, to actually share that truth with people all around. And may we glorify your great name as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.